When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Let me put this disclaimer up front. Deval Patrick is a friend of mine. I worked for him when he ran for governor of Massachusetts in 2006, and I deeply, deeply respect him. He's got an amazing personal story, and he's an inspirational figure in our public life. I had a chance to sit down with him for my CNN TV show, and this is the extended version of that conversation. Governor Deval Patrick, good to see you again. Nice to see An you, old David. friend. Thank you for having me. And it's so appropriate that we should meet here in Faneuil Hall in Boston, not just because uh, it has a lot of meaning to you and your own political career, but to history Indeed. of this country. And there are two major narratives that kind of course through this building. At least. One, yeah, many, many actually. Uh, Samuel Adams spoke here, Frederick Douglass, Lucy Stone freedom fighters, uh, and also Faneuil Hall was, and this, this area was where slaves were auctioned, and Peter Faneuil was a slave merchant, and it just reminds us that 250 years later, we're still struggling mm. with these, these two competing right. legacies. Where are we as a country America's right original now? sin. You know? Yes, and we're still feeling it. Right, right. Well, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the things I, 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 I've said for a long time as a as a as a black man as a former civil rights uh, lawyer is that um, we uh, we struggle in this country to acknowledge both the extraordinary progress we have made on civil and human rights much of it during my lifetime um, and the progress that remains to be made you know we have had uh, it was remarkable to me when uh, Barack Obama was elected elected president, how many of the pundits said, we have now reached a post-racial yes. society. And it was an extraordinary accomplishment for him and for the nation. Um, it was a time for us to, to take a bow. Um, I think there was such exuberance uh, felt around the world that, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, even the, the, the Nobel Committee sort of, yeah. you know, exploded with enthusiasm. Yes, much to our embarrassment. Uh, well, and I think, but you, you could kind of understand it. It was, uh, it was an affirmation of, uh, of, the, of the effort we've been making over so many yeah, years really to overcome. Yeah, it was for the country. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it was not, um, it wasn't the end because we are about perfecting our nation, not being a perfect nation, but perfecting our nation. And that journey continues. And we've seen, um, as in other times in our history, that there's been some retrenchment and some reaction. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I remember standing in Grant Park uh, on that night. I don't know if you were of there. Of course I was there. With us. But uh, there was this sense that this barrier had been shattered, that this was a huge leap forward for the country. And I think it was. But how much of what followed uh, was 
essentially a, a, a backlash to it, a, a reaction uh, to that progress. Uh, President Obama talked about it just recently. He did. A marvelous speech, um, as, uh, as always, and one of, his, one of his best. I remember that night in Grand Park. I remember coming early to Chicago uh, that day so I could go to my old neighborhood on the south side and just sit quietly on the stoop of the, uh, of the place where I lived and place, in fact, where I was born and just experience what it was like uh, to be from that place. And uh, on the night when we were about to, uh, to nominate uh, or indeed to elect uh, the first black president of the United States. And I remember um, the feelings in Grand Park, but I particularly remember being on the plane the next day flying back to Boston and being by myself for just a second and, and, uh, and looking out the window and that's when I lost it. Um, uh, at that quiet time. I also felt um, disappointed but not surprised when Donald Trump uh, was elected for a whole host of reasons, but not the least of which uh, was that he spoke as a candidate one truth. And that was when he, in my view, and that was when he said that uh, conventional or uh, establishment politics wasn't working well enough for a lot of people. I think Bernie Sanders spoke a similar truth I think Barack Obama spoke a similar truth as he was yes. leaving office. And I think um, those of us who have worked in politics, you know, you have made a similar observation. I have a whole lot of folks have seen that folks um, who have lived the American dream or, or who have been waiting for the American dream are frustrated that the American dream itself has become stymied by a whole host uh, and for a whole host of reasons over the last little while. And, and frankly, the president spoke about this in the speech he gave just the other, just the other day. The, the business of saving the nation from an emergency um, was one thing and an incredible accomplishment. The financial crisis. Exactly. But, um, but saving the nation from 30 or 40 years of systemic um, undermining of the, of the mechanisms that enable people like me uh, you know, a great education system and a system of opportunities that enable us to lift ourselves um, with the help of programs and policies and people um, out of, uh, uh, of struggling circumstances and into the middle class and beyond. That has been compromised by choices that we've made as a nation for a long time now. And I think folks are dealing with that and facing that. And I think uh, uh, some of that have been, um, you know, poor choices or short-term choices made in politics. But that, that isn't the whole message that Donald Trump no, was no, delivering. No, no, I get that. And his, his, his basic analysis was that, the, that this was a zero-sum game and the reason that uh, people have lost was because others had gained and the others were uh, largely, you know, immigrants, uh, minorities. No, I get that, David, and I'm 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 putting uh, I, I'm 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 simply trying to say that I don't think that the only reason that Donald Trump won is because of hate. Mm -hmm. I think that hate was a central part of his campaign, and I think has become an even greater part of his uh, of his administration. But I think that um, that we are at a time of extraordinary social and economic anxiety. And social and economic anxiety is combustible. And, um, you know, you can use that combustion to, uh, to fuel fear and division, or you can use it to fuel the, the future. And, and either of those paths, historically speaking, is, is American. 
um, you know, only one of them is patriotic. And I think that uh, what Donald Trump has, the path he's chosen is American, but it's, it's not particularly patriotic. And I think what, what Democrats are choosing um, in, the, uh, uh, in, the, in the primaries we've seen in the midterms, uh, and I think right up through, uh, through, the, uh, through the general is a much more patriotic uh, approach, and it's why I think we're succeeding. What was your reaction uh, when you saw his, um, his comments around Charlottesville. Oh, God. It was, um, it was alarm. Uh, it was, um, um, it was disgust. Again, not, it wasn't surprise though. He has a long history here. Um, I've been frustrated, I will say, by the number of um, members of the Republican Party who have, um, who, who, who've adopted this line, you know, sort of watch what he does, not what he says. Um, but isn't that you're a practicing politician off and on? Mm -hmm. um, more, more off than on. Survival. Days. Survival, well, we'll get into that. Survival is the first instinct of most politicians. And right now, it feels as if Donald Trump is, uh, that is the dominant force within the Republican Party. That is to say, those who challenge him go off to retirement, and those who, uh, who support him uh, tend to win their primaries. Now, whether they win general elections, we'll find out uh, in November. Uh, in some cases. You know, uh, David, there's got to be more to this than the next election. You know, I, I, when I think about the next election, whether it's 2018 or 2020 or 2022, you know, folks say that, there's, that the character of the candidate is, is always on the ballot. I think the character of the country is on the ballot right now. Uh, and that is up to not just the candidates, but frankly, it's a question being called for us as citizens. And, um, and particularly when it comes to the President of the United States, words matter. Uh, those words... You said that famously once. Well, <laughs> the, the... I mean, think about it. There are choice words um, spoken with, uh, with conviction and from the heart. They have moved this country in profound ways and powerful ways and positive ways to do the extraordinary things that have made us truly great historically. Uh, and they have moved us uh, in profoundly, uh, profound, uh, you know, sort of sideways uh, directions at times too. And I'm, I'm afraid that's happening right now. And I think there are an awful lot of other folks who are feeling that. You know, the, uh, the words that have moved us tend to be words that were contemplated and calculated to move us mm. to, they were, they were the product of thought and reflection. Uh, Twitter doesn't exactly lend itself to that. I'm reminded that Lincoln used to write letters in anger and put them in his desk for a week. And Truman did as well, I think, as well. Yeah. 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 Uh, but that's not the case now. What is the impact on the country of this kind of steady stream of acrimony. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, the, the answer is kind of in your in your question. I mean, you know, uh, constant invective is 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 just that it's a poison. Right. And uh, um, we don't actually have to express every thought we have. Um, even having a Twitter account doesn't mean you have to push the send button every time you type it out. Um, I, I've never understood. Um, I mean, frankly, I've never understood reality TV. I hope this doesn't get me in trouble with producers who may be watching this, but I don't understand why a lack of decorum is entertainment. I, I, don't, I, don't, even, I don't get that. Um, but in that sense, you know, Donald Trump is right on trend, right? Um, well, and maybe the product of it. I mean, it, he was really launched uh, into his public career by his role as a reality TV right. star. Right. So. He captured a gestalt of some sort yeah. uh, out there. Your differences with the president are manifest. Uh, there's one thing on which you uh, agree, but maybe for different reasons. Neither of you seem to like Jeff Sessions very much. <laughs> you uh, you uh, opposed his appointment to the federal bench when you were at the NAACP. You helped block his appointment to the federal bench. You were opposed to his appointment as attorney general. What say you now? that he is in the crosshairs of the president. Well, I feel for, I feel for him and his position. I wouldn't wish that on any, uh, on any attorney general. I think he's being, uh, I think he's being uh, mishandled by his, um, by his boss. Uh, and I think if, you know, if he's not in the position where either of them think they ought to be, then there are ways to um, uh, honorably to deal with that than a, you know, a public, uh, Flogging. Flogging. Um, but, you know, my, my issues with Jeff Sessions go back to trying a case against him, voting rights case against him when I was at the Legal Defense Fund, uh, or against his staff, uh, a, uh, a criminal case that he brought against three uh, of the people who helped organize the Selma and Montgomery March. And it was a, it, they were trumped up uh, charges um, uh, at the time, and we believed they were, and we defended these three, uh, uh, these three activists who were then, you know, Old people, um, and we uh, and we won their uh, acquittals. And he's on probably all not. He's probably his policies as attorney general now, apart from his handling of some of the matters that have gotten into hot water with the president, probably still displease you. Oh, please! I mean, his his uh, his attitude about uh, about what uh, constitutes um, fair access to the ballot. Uh, about what it means to be a, uh, uh, a full uh, and enfranchised citizen of the United States are as antiquated as they come. And um, his, um, his uh, uh, soft and saccharine tone when he talks about it in front of certain um, audiences is not enough uh, for, for me to be persuaded that... Uh, Would you that like to see him go? Listen, I, I don't think, I'd like to see this whole administration go because, uh, uh, and that's what, that's what 2020 is about, and 2018 is about putting some real oversight in the administration in the meantime. There is a flip side to all of this. Mm. I know you've been traveling the country. Uh, what, what have you seen? Uh, because there seems to be this renewed sense that, you know, I, I was that's just it. getting, you probably, yeah. you probably get it too, uh, or have gotten it too. Eh, elections don't really matter. They're all the same. Turns out they do. You don't hear that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is a, uh, as you say, the great thing about 
um, the here and now is that there's all this incredible energy that a lot of folks who've been on the sidelines have come off the sidelines. Um, you know, I think uh, for me, when I, when I stepped away from, from being governor, as you know, we don't have term limits here in, in Massachusetts. I have a term limit named Diane, who yes. said two terms and that's it. <laughs> yes. um, and now you have to get reacquainted with me and the family and, yeah. um, uh, and with a, uh, you know, with a, with a private sector paycheck. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, that's even more important than the statutes. Well, and Charlottesville, for me, was, um, uh, I think, you know, I feel that there are all kinds of ways to serve. You don't have to be in government to serve. Uh, and, that, uh, and that being a citizen um, offers lots of different opportunities to, um, to engage. And so I've been thinking about different ways where I can uh, engage as a private citizen. And as I have, and since Charlottesville in particular, um, not, not, not only Charlottesville, because I'm thinking about, you know, the way all these marvelous um, uh, uh, lawyers showed up in airports after the so-called Muslim ban or the, or the women's march the day after the, um, the, day after the uh, inauguration. The inauguration. Yeah. Um, there's so many ways in which um, uh, folks who had been on the sidelines have come off the sidelines and said, I have to do something, I have to show up. And I think that that energy is enormously important and powerful. And I think organizing it and channeling it in positive ways is, uh, is a challenge, but worth the effort. Uh, and I think another thing um, that is equally important is a, is a, uh, a point of wisdom. Um, I heard at a, at a speech at the, actually at the uh, summit last year, uh, of the Obama Foundation, a really, really wonderful speech where the speaker said, um, uh, he talked about all the folks who are woke today, as the kids yeah. say. He said it's important um, that the woke leave room for the still waking. And I, I thought, what a marvelous insight because folks are in different places on their journey and um, uh, not having you know, leaving space for, 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 for people who may not be quite as agitated, quite as angry, uh, quite as certain about what the right answer, but making room to make common cause with the folks who were just stirring is, I think, also important in building coalition and making real change over time. Um, I, I want to ask you about that. Before I do, I want to add, uh, just being out there, I mean, I... I've been on both sides of waves in mm. my political life. I've been almost drowned by them, mm. and uh, I've also uh, surfed them. Um, what do you sense? Do you, do you feel like something is going to happen in November that is going to be a strong uh, message of restraint? I, I uh, well, restraint on the administration? The yeah. Well, who knows? I, I hope that's not I all. Mean, I don't, no, I understand, but I, and I don't know how he would reach such yeah. a result, but let's just put it more plainly. I mean, do you see Democrats uh, rolling into the control of the House in November, perhaps I hope so. other places? I hope Senate so. Well. I hope so, but I think, uh, you know, folks are understanding there's a lot of organizing that has, that has to happen. There's a lot of registering that has to happen. There's a lot of getting out the vote that has to happen. I think the folks are beginning to focus on how much um, all of the mechanisms of democracy have themselves been compromised over time, that there's been this parallel agenda 
to, uh, uh, to frustrate the democracy, gerrymandering and vote suppression and the incredible influence of money mm-hmm. in politics, which is why uh, among the substantive policy agenda I think Democrats have to be about, there ought to be a democracy agenda as well to fix just the basic um, access to a free and flourishing democracy so that people get to actually do what democracy uh, contemplates, which is that people have a chance to express themselves freely by exercising their free right to vote. President Obama argued last week that there's a conscious effort to frustrate that uh, agenda because that's how uh, entrenched interests keep their power. power. That's right. That's right. And that has, uh, that has been afoot for some while. And for a long time, I think we've kind of said, they're there, it's happening, and that's well, a and terrible Well, and both parties thing. are compromised. And you, I, you know. I think that's right. I think that's right. But I, my view is that uh, as the Democrats um, increasingly formulate a, an ambitious, broad um, uh, agenda economically and from a reform uh, point of view and from a foreign policy point of view, there should be also a democracy agenda that goes right at reforming uh, the very fundamentals of our access to, uh, to the ballot. So let's talk about the, the woke and the still waking because there is this stirring within uh, the Democratic Party, you just saw it in, in Massachusetts. Yeah. You saw a, uh, a, a, a young candidate, uh, Ayanna Presley, yeah. uh, win. You, you were on the other side of, of that with a, a guy who had been supportive of you in the past, Mike Capuano, yeah. long-term Wonderful guy. congressman. But uh, she was one of several uh, uh, candidates, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, mm-hmm. uh, Andrew Gillum in Florida, yeah. Stacey Abrams in in Georgia, both of whom are running for governor, and they are uh, a new face of the of the Democratic yeah. Party. Uh, young really uh, people of color, energetic, but uh, in many ways more to the left of the establishment. And they they talk about abolishing ICE, and they talk about single payer health care yeah. and uh, universal basic income, and in some cases. Uh, you know, proceeding apace with an impeachment. This has made establishment Democrats nervous. <laughs> and good. and, and uh, what good. do you what do you have to say about? Well, that? first of all, I, I think it doesn't um, it doesn't quite capture what happened in Massachusetts. I mean, there was hardly any philosophical difference between right. the uh, between the candidates. And she reflected the district in, uh, in Massachusetts. Well, I and, and I will say of, of first of all, she's. Fabulous, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and she's going to be great in Congress. Um, Mike Capuano is also fabulous, and uh, and when I was a an unknown, brand new, first time candidate, uh, he stepped away from the establishment, who were paying me no mind. Uh, I remember and, that because I worked with you on that. Yes, campaign. you did, and uh, and you will remember he broke with the establishment and helped, and helped, and I mean not just. Mm-hmm. I'm with him, but he worked uh, and made a way for, for me, and, that, uh, and that's something he for did. which I, I am grateful. Um, he's, a, he's a strong liberal, and I, I respect that, and she's a strong liberal, and I respect that as well, and she'll be great. I love the fact that so many um, new, young, and progressive candidates are stepping forward in Massachusetts and elsewhere, and I think in some ways, um, two things about that. First, you know the in, in a way, they're coming home. You know, the party at its strongest and at its, 
at its, uh, at its most innovative, um, thinking back to Roosevelt's time, this is that party, right? Big ideas, trying new things. You agree with those ideas? I love those. I, for, I love the idea of innovation. I love the idea that we would try big things to solve big problems, not because I think government can or should undertake to solve every problem in everybody's life, but because I think government has a role to play in helping people help themselves. But you campaigned down in Alabama for Doug Jones. Uh, You saw Connor Lamb win in this uh, district outside of Pittsburgh, probably abolishing ICE and some of these other uh, proposals that these candidates have talked about in their uh, venues uh, would not play well in in those areas. So how in a big diverse country do you uh, formulate a unifying vision and march forward as a as a party it's it's well, look, are we I, headed for a big reckoning in 2020 look, over this I, issue look, I, I don't i don't know that uh, i don't i don't know that we should be trying to to formulate a, a platform for 2020 today and at this uh, and at this table but i think what you take I think something, my next six questions you, take, <laughs> well, you should get another card <laughs> then uh, i think that you know when i when i hear abolish ice I don't think anybody is saying um, uh, that we don't need some agency to do that job. But we do need an agency with a different temperament and a different attitude and a different sensibility about how to but do that But isn't that more about who, who runs the government than... Well, it's, it's, because that, that, it's also that, but yeah. we had a different president mm-hmm. running the government when Barack Obama was, was in charge, and we had a recalcitrant ICE at the time, and the president has spoken about that, and so have members of, uh, of his cabinet at the time. So we, we do need some clear um, uh, reform in attitude and function and behavior deeper in the government than, uh, than just uh, at, the, uh, uh, at the level of the Oval Office. So whether that's abolish, abolishing ICE, changing its name, whatever it is, we need, a different, we need different behaviors. So it's like saying... Well, essentially, it's you're, like you're saying, saying there still needs to be some agency that performs that Somebody's got to do that job. Mm-hmm. We have to enforce our, our, uh, our border laws. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing that's implicit in all these candidacies, these are young people. And uh, it, it suggests uh, generational change mm-hmm. within the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And yet you have this paradox that, you know, the, when you look at the leading candidates for president, uh, many of them are in their 70s, nearing 80. Mm. Uh, does that, how do you square that? Well, the voters will square that. Um, you know, the, and it, even, this, even the notion of, of, of using the term um, leading candidates, and I, you know, I, I hesitate to correct you because you've been around this, uh, this track a lot more times than I, yeah. than I do, but it's- I've been it's, humbled many times. It's, so. two, it's two years plus before, uh, before we know who the candidates yeah. will, um, will be and certainly who the leading ones will be. So it's, uh, we'll see. What about you? What about me? Well, your name comes up, and um, that's because we have a twenty-four hour news cycle. No, it's because it's it's because I think that there are a lot of people who are desperately looking for a candidate who can lead uh, the Democratic Party forward, and uh, and your name comes up in that context. Uh, Are you thinking about it, and, and if so, why? Well, my focus right now is on the on the midterms. I understand that, but no, let's no, no, stipulate that. No, don't say that. blah blah blah. Um, I'm, really, I mean, my, my focus. I didn't think I was saying my, my my focus that is on blunt. is on the uh, is on the. Uh, they'll edit that part out, but I hope they don't. <laughs> um, my focus is on the midterms and on my day job. Um, you know, the 
first of all, I have a I have a terrific new fund. I've I've launched at Bain Capital, and uh, and I'm having a ball, and we're doing some good. Um, and I've got a great team, and we are building, and that is important to me and important to our. Firm. But you said it's so, on your radar. So hey, let me just let me okay, just. Okay. All right. Okay. And secondly, the the midterms are critical. Mm -hmm. They really are critical. I know you agree with this. I do. And uh, and so on nights and weekends, I'm trying to spend time on a handful of campaigns, mostly in places where. Um, this is this is how I would characterize it, and I don't mean disrespect in saying it, but where it feels to me, Democrats haven't been talking to folks for a long time. It's frankly how I felt about Doug Jones's race in Alabama, mm -hmm. where, where we haven't where we haven't been willing to compete. We've kind of taken it for granted that they were red states or Republican states, and uh, or Republican districts, and uh, and we've we've kind of stepped away and said that's theirs and we'll go pay attention to what's ours. And these are states where there are great candidates, there is a, there, where, the, where the conventional wisdom has been put aside and I've been invited to come in and help um, because the candidates understand that there's actually some power in the respect shown by, by showing up where people are and inviting them to take responsibility for their own civic and political future. So that is where I, my focus is, and frankly, where I think everybody's focused. Yes, but right. the day after that election, the focus is going to turn to 2020. And so ask me the day start, after. You're not gonna, but you're not going to start thinking about it the day after the election. You'd you're, be surprised. You're, th you're thinking about it uh, already. You've got a, a, your, your friends of yours, not you, have started a leadership pack, the Reason to Believe pack, and it's clearly designed to help encourage you uh, to run, you're moving around in your campaigning, and I understand that's because this election is important, but it's also something that uh, one would do if one was, was going to run. Uh, why would you do it? What would cause you to do it, to run to, for president? To run for president? Mm -hmm. So, um, first of all, I meant what I said. I really am focused on 20. No, I understand. Um, I will say that... Uh, I think we're going to be very fortunate. Um, I don't think we know all the candidates mm -hmm. who, will, um, who will step forward. We know a lot of them, or we've heard a lot of them. Um, you probably more than me. Um, but I've read a lot of them. I've read about a lot of them. I think we're going to be fortunate um, in having a big and broad and deep field on the Democratic side, a talented field on the Democratic side. And as I look at it, um, it's hard to imagine how you even get noticed in such a big, broad field without being, um, uh, you know, shrill, sensational, or a celebrity. And I'm none of those things, and I'm never going to be any of those things. Mm -hmm. um, so so it's what not, would your place be it's in that not, mix? Well, I'm not sure there is a place for me in that mix, um, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, I, like, um, I like my life, and I, but I want to contribute. I want to help. And I think, as I say, that there are lots of ways to serve. Um, and I don't have to be a presidential candidate um, to, uh, uh, to serve. What do you think the candidate, what kind of candidate does the Democratic Party need? I think we need a, uh, a candidate who, um, who is bold and willing to think big. And, and the most appealing thing about this moment, um, from my perspective, is that I think the electorate is willing to think big, which is to say, um, 
we're willing to think about how to solve the issue of access to affordable care for everybody. Um, we're willing to think about, you know, how do we solve the question of schools that perform for everybody? You know, how do we, um, how do we really deal with the, um, with the question of an economy that works for everybody? What are those fundamental questions and how do we bring to the table because um, I do think that the, that, the, uh, that the greatest power that any executive has, chief executive has, is the convening power. How do you bring to the table all of the voices who have something to contribute to those, uh, to those solutions? And, and, and I feel like we've had a series of, um, uh, of, uh, of leaders, save one, um, uh, President Obama, who was stymied by circumstances and forces beyond his control, who were um, unwilling to think big. And we have a populace who is ready. And I hope that we have leaders who are ready. And I think that that, that thinking big is a, is a unifying opportunity for us. This issue of, um, of uh, Am I reaction to, uh, oh yes, yeah. uh, reaction to uh, Obama, whether there was a backlash mm. uh, to Obama. Along with that, there is this uh, theory uh, when names come up of African-American potential candidates, you and there are several others, mm. uh, that, well, we can't really go there because, uh, because you know, we're, we'll never get these white working class voters we've lost back if yeah. we have yeah. an African-American candidate. Yeah. I don't buy that. I'm going to tell you why I don't buy that. Um, you know, the, um, you know, opioid addiction was a problem in my neighborhood. Yeah. In my household. Yes, your uncle um, right. had a heroin problem. You know, it, it was an issue when it got to the suburbs. Um, you know, job, economic uh, disruption where the, where the, where the uh, where industry got up and moved and left um, uncertainty in its wake. I knew what that looked like in my neighborhood in the 50s and 60s. It's now more broadly felt. What I'm saying is that the, the things that, that I experienced growing up on the south side of Chicago are things that we're hearing talked about as, uh, as more, uh, more broadly experienced national phenomenon that are touching communities of different shapes and kinds, small towns, rural communities everywhere. And this is what I meant when I said earlier that social and economic anxiety is combustible and it is broad. And what has happened, I think, since 2016 and the run-up to 2016 is that we got a candidate in candidate Trump who saw those circumstances and used them to divide us when those circumstances themselves are in common among us. And what we need, I think, and what I am hoping for, are candidates who draw us together through that shared experience and say, you know, there isn't anything we're experiencing that we haven't as a populace created and that isn't beyond our capacity, uh, that isn't within our capacity to solve. You mentioned your upbringing on the south side of Chicago. You're sort of the great American story in many ways. Um, that neighborhood that you grew, grew up in was a very challenged uh, neighborhood. It was. And you, you uh, came from a challenged home in that your dad, who is a, a noted uh, jazz 
uh, jazz man, uh, Pat Patrick, uh, played with Sun Ra and others, and mm -hmm. quite, quite well known. Uh, he left you and your family when you were a little boy. Mm -hmm. uh, t talk about that and that, that day you've written about so compellingly and mm. talked about when, when, he, when he left. Yeah, my, my parents split when I was about four years old. And, uh, and I remember that, that day. Um, it's funny, I, 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 I didn't uh, really appreciate that four-year-olds remember things as vividly um, until I started. Very few four-year-olds express, uh, experience the vivid kinds of experiences yeah. that you did. Uh, my, uh, my, my parents had a huge argument. Uh, we were living in a basement apartment on the south side of Chicago, not too far from my grandparents' place where I had I actually had been born in my grand in my grandmother's bed, and uh, we ultimately moved in with our grandparents at 54th and, and Wabash. And uh, but we were living at that time separately from them. My grandpa my parents had a big argument, and my father stormed out, and I went chasing after him down the street, and uh, and he kept shouting at me to go home, go home, and uh, and walking, and I kept chasing behind him, not knowing what was going on. And finally, he turned around and he just whacked me. And uh, uh, I'm sure out of just frustration and, and anger, and I went sprawling on the on the sidewalk. And I remember, um, you know, you've had those cement burns, yes. you know. And I remember that feeling. I still, I can feel it now as I as I tell you the story. And I remember the feeling of looking up at him, um, walking away. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a parent, a grand grandparent now, five year old grandson, and I can't, I can't imagine walking away from one of my own, you know, in that position. Um, and, uh, and I didn't see him again for years after that. Um, my mother and my sister and I ultimately moved in with, uh, with my grandparents, as I said, and, uh, and we shared one uh, of the two bedrooms in that tenement uh, apartment and a set of bunk beds. Uh, and, and so we'd rotate top bunk, bottom bunk, floor every third night on the floor. <clears throat> and I, you know, I went to big and broken and under-resourced and sometimes violent public schools. Um, I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember owning a book of my own until I uh, until I was 14 and I got a scholarship to come to a boarding school not far from here. But we had. Uh, we had incredible teachers um, and incredible adults who paid attention to us. You know, there was a, a sense of community. You, um, I th I, as I think about that story and as I think about you and your temperament and your approach, um, you know, everybody who talks about you through the years talks about, you know, your interest in mediating differences and finding common ground. And I was wondering whether the conflict that you experienced as a child, sort of not just with your dad, but you, you mentioned your uncle hmm. and, and that conflict because he had a drug problem. This enraged your mother because hmm. you were, your, your kids were in the home. I mean, did that teach you uh, or was it going to this completely uh, foreign uh, place from yeah. the South Side of Chicago yeah. to Tony Milton Academy in Massachusetts? Hmm. Mm -hmm. Did, how does one formulate that kind of personality? Wow, <laughs> you, we should have a shrink here to uh, probably help with that, 
within it. Well, you know, you, 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 um, I think, you know, I'm, I'm unfinished. I'm still, I'm still figuring it out. I remember coming to Milton and uh, it was so foreign. You know, I, you've heard me tell the story of the, the dress code. Yes. And they had, a, they, had a, they had a jacket and tie requirement. And we got a, so the boys wore jackets and ties to class and we got a dress code at home. And, the, um, and so my- They sent it to you they before sent you it, came. Exactly. And I hadn't seen the campus before. My grandparents splurged on a new jacket for me to bring to class. But a, but a jacket on the south side of Chicago is a windbreaker. So um, I show up the day before classes began um, all by myself. This is 1970. And the next morning, the boys are putting on their blue blazers and their tweed coats. And I have my windbreaker. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, <laughs> I have a lot to learn. And you know, it was 1970. It was a complicated time. There were a handful of black and brown kids on the campus. It was the the campus had shut down the spring before over the Vietnam War. Um, it was. You had in, an incident with your headmaster. You went on a hamburger run, and that's right. The busing was happening um, near the end of my time at uh, in Boston. In Boston, so and we were just over the line, so there was all kinds of racial tension in the uh, in the broader uh, Boston uh, community. And of course, while the campus itself, you know, we again adults who were who showed kindness and and other students who were curious, but curious to a point. You know, they were they were interested, but so much in my life on the South Side of Chicago, mostly interested that I um, uh, uh, sort of fit in. And my friends on the South Side of Chicago were interested, but so much in my life on the uh, at Milton Academy. Um, and it got to a point where it felt like the price of admission to the one world was rejecting the other. And at 14 years old, you know, that's a that's a heck of a thing to have to learn to straddle these two worlds. Um, and I think I learned a lesson painful at the time, but incredibly valuable over time. And that was that I had to figure out who I was and be that all the time. Just figure that out and don't worry about the consequences. Just be that person all the time. You're going to lose some friends, but you'd figure out who loved you um, and just try to be that consistently. Uh, and the rest of it would fall into place. And so being able to move with some confidence in who you are in different uh, environments um, has actually made a huge difference in, the, um, in my own It's interesting ease. because as I think about it, you've also kind of lived in two worlds uh, as a professional. You've lived Multiple. the life of a, of a public servant. Uh, you, you were at the NAACP at the Legal Defense and Education Fund that Thurgood Marshall mm -hmm. started, and you did voting rights cases mm -hmm. and, uh, and death, death penalty, penalty cases. Mm -hmm. um, and then you did corporate, uh, you did corporate law, mm -hmm. uh, and um, and you also uh, went back and ran the Civil Rights Division in the Justice Department. Um, and then you did more corporate law, and in fact, you were general counsel to uh, two big corporations, Texaco and Coca-Cola, each with big issues. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and now in your post-gubernatorial, I want to talk about the gubernatorial years, you're working at Bain Capital, which mm -hmm. became famous in 2012 and uh, when Mitt Romney, who founded the firm mm -hmm. or helped found the firm, was mm -hmm. running. 
uh, and became kind of a symbol of, uh, of, of uh, uh, maybe unfairly in some cases. Not by its design, I was going to say. <laughs> cor corporate corporate yeah. greed shutting down, mm -hmm. rationalizing businesses and so mm -hmm. on for profit. Mm -hmm. um, and it raises this issue about, which you would get if you did decide uh, to run for president, mm -hmm. uh, about uh, you know, how you can be the committed progressive uh, and the committed capitalist at the same time. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, nobody's a cartoon. I'm not a cartoon, and uh, I don't fit in the box. And I think you know, it was a point that came up when I was running for governor, and, I, and it's a point I made in, in response. If you, if you want someone who fits in a box, I'm not that guy. Um, I have tried to, to do good uh, and do right in every assignment I've had, uh, and never to take an assignment um, where I felt I had to leave my conscience at the door. And so, you know, I was a civil rights lawyer with my whole heart and my whole head. Uh, and I brought that same heart and head to my work as a private attorney for private, um, private interests. Um, frankly, some of the same interests on the private side. Uh, and, uh, and to my time as a public servant and to my time as a corporate, uh, corporate executive. And you know what, you better hope somebody does. Because if that's the, you know, if that's how we're going to divide this thing up, that it only the only the good folks are working in public interest and in government, and everybody else is working in the private sector, we get a much bigger problem. Yeah, than, how would you? Uh, how I mean, obviously, this is a good time for capitalists. Yeah. Uh, corporate profits are very, very high. Uh, we just had a huge tax cut uh, that was very favorable, but. Uh, we also have these yawning gaps that you're well aware of uh, in terms of income. And I, I, it, it feels as if there is a kind of, of, of sort of splendid indifference to that among, uh, among some of the capitalists. And it, it seems threatening to capitalism and to democracy that the system uh, seems to work very well for people who are well positioned to take advantage of yeah. it and yeah. not well for many others. It's so interesting you started your, your, your question that way because I would challenge your premise. I don't think it's a good time at all for capitalists. Um, one of the reasons why I got interested in impact investing and why we are... Explain that. Yeah, so impact investing is the, the notion uh, that um, you can generate both a, a competitive financial return and measurable social or environmental good. And our fund is, uh, uh, is a, it's a North America-focused fund. We're investing in companies, as I say, for both financial uh, uh, return, but also um, impact in three areas, uh, sustainability, health, and wellness, and what we're calling community building. And I can get more into that mm -hmm. if you like. Mm -hmm. And we've raised a fund to, um, uh, to um, uh, invest in um, you know, small and medium-sized uh, companies for, for that purpose. We've made nine investments so far. We have team of 15 uh, folks working on this. It's, it's, it's just incredible. But make your point about capitalism. Well, so in fact, I think capitalism is in trouble. Um, you know, there are, there are um, a bunch of surveys that show that folks are losing faith in, yeah. in capitalism. And you know what? You can't blame them. Um, particularly young people, um, like my daughter's age, who graduated um, into the recession and saw what the excesses of capital capitalism produced. It was completely 
uh, unrestrained short-termism um, and an unwillingness to think beyond the, uh, the bottom line most narrowly uh, defined. And uh, in some ways, impact investing is a response to that. The notion that, uh, that uh, real value requires that you consider more than one bottom line, that financial return actually depends on your consideration of people and planet alongside the financial uh, bottom line. And you, know, you may remember um, that when we first talked about my leaving my interest in leaving, or maybe by then I had left Coca-Cola um, to come home and run for, for governor, that it was the short-termism that I was seeing in public companies um, and that bad habit I was seeing creeping into the way we governed ourselves, not just in Massachusetts, but in politics mm -hmm. generally. You know, that we'd gone from quarter to co quarter management yeah. in... Tyranny uh, of the quarterly report. Right, in corporations, yeah. and that... And that in that uh, uh, election cycle to election cycle behavior in, uh, or news cycle to news cycle behavior in, uh, in politics, that I wanted to see whether it was possible to bring a principled, longer-term uh, focus to governing. Because I think a few short-term, uh, a few near-term hard decisions that were in our long-term interests, though difficult politically, would actually serve us well Tough politically, but service. Part of the well, that's what I tried to part do. Part of the government. role of government, it, uh, you know, I would argue, uh, is to provide some guardrails uh, so that capitalists don't drive off the uh, the road in ways that are destructive to people, destructive. That's to right. The but I, I I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, but I also think that um, you know, for a long time, for a long time. Um, and I say this as someone who spent more of my career in business than in, mm -hmm. in the public sector. Um, government and philanthropy, in effect, has kind of let the private sector off the hook, meaning we've kind of, and the public, we've kind of looked to government and philanthropy to kind of do the good and clean it up and business was over there doing its thing. And so having uh, impact investing come along and say, actually, there's a model here mm -hmm. where we come in and do our part too, um, I think it's a pretty good thing. You spoke to a couple of people uh, then. One was Mike Dukakis, the former governor of Massachusetts, mm -hmm. who was a little incredulous. You, you were at 3% or something in the polls. Was it that high? Highly unknown. <laughs> it was margin of error stuff. <laughs> Almost unknown to people in Massachusetts. There were very well-funded and well-known and highly regarded candidates in the race. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and yet you were able to overcome that. Uh, what, were, what were you thinking? Well... And you um, spoke to Barack Obama as well, did I you? I did. I did. Um, you were friends. We were, and I had... Uh, I remember that conversation. Um, I, he was moving into, uh, well, you asked me about Mike Dukakis, and I'll come back to yeah. Barack Obama, but um, I went to see Mike Dukakis, um, uh, partly as a courtesy, but also because he was a real believer in grassroots um, campaigning. And uh, it was, in some ways, out of fashion. And uh, he was out in California. Uh, and, um, uh, and I went to see him in his office and I said, this is what I'm thinking about. And he said, really? 
Uh, and I said yes. And I said, and I, you know, I, I'm, uh, I want to run a grassroots campaign, and I understand you're the guru. And he said, well, I believe in that. And you've got to get back to the old way of doing it, and you've got to knock on doors, you've got to introduce yourself to, to people, and it's early, so you have time um, to do that, and here are some people you should talk to. And I went to talk to those people, and in the way that campaigns have a grace about them, or that politics have a grace uh, about them, they handed me on to the next person, and they, mm -hmm. to the next people. Um, so what did Obama tell you? <laughs> he was great. He had, um, he was moving into his new office. Senate office. Yes, his new Just Senate Just been elected office. to the United States Senate. Right. It was in the basement. And, um, you know, like every friend he knew, uh, and lots of new friends, I'd been active in his, uh, in his senatorial campaign. And I said, uh, I said, uh, Senator, I said, I'm, uh, I'm so proud of your election. I said, uh, I'm thinking about running for governor. He said, huh. He said, uh, you got any money? I said, nope. He said, uh, you got any organization? I said, nope. He said, uh, you got any name recognition? I said, nope. He said, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> and off we were. What, what is, what, have you uh, had the same conversations about 2020 and are they pretty much the same? Uh, you know, my conversations with him are confidential, but I will tell you this, when, uh, what was it, four years later? Was it about four years later? Um, so I had been elected. He was thinking about running for president. And uh, he was on the vineyard uh, with he and, and, uh, and Mrs. Obama at, uh, at Valerie's and- Valerie Jarrett. I think maybe he had announced mm -hmm. at that point. And it was, it was, there was a slow summer, it was kind of stalled. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'd had a relationship with President Clinton. I didn't know mm -hmm. Mrs. Clinton as, as well. Um, and, um, and I was coming off my first several bumpy months. And we went down, Diane and I went down to have dinner, have dinner with them. And, I, and on the way over, um, I said to Diane, you know what, he's gonna ask me about this race and, um, and whether I would endorse. And I said, of course I'm gonna endorse, but I don't know, what do I say? And she said, well, you should give him some advice. And I said, all right, give me a piece of paper. And she had a little tiny piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And I wrote three bits of advice. And we had a lovely time with them. We were about to go. And he said, uh, well, do you have any advice? And are you going to help? And I said, of course I'm going to help. And I said, but I have a little advice. And I pulled out this little piece of paper. And I said, I have three things I want to say to you. And I said, the first is run like you're willing to lose. And you, I know you know what that means. Run with a real sense of conviction. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, the second is run at the grassroots because there's nothing like it. There's nothing like the personal commitment and you know, turning the campaign over to others and letting it be their campaign. And I said, the third piece of advice is get ready for them coming at you with, um, you can just give a good speech. And I said, just words. Mm -hmm. And I folded it up. I started putting put it in my pocket. He said, "Give me that piece of paper." So he took my piece of paper, and uh, and then you know what happened. Yeah, he got just a trouble because he used that. Right. He used that uh, concept. Talk about your governorship. Yeah. Uh, you served two terms. Mm -hmm. uh, you had uh, success on uh, bringing uh, 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 biotech to uh, 
to Massachusetts on renewable energy. You, you, you moved uh, education uh, forward. Charter schools was a big initiative of yours. You also ran into problems. Uh, Everybody does. You, you know, you wanted to do a big infrastructure program, ran into the recession and resistance in the legislature. And part of the critique was that you, you ran against Beacon Hill. You never quite understood how to conquer it. Uh, is that a fair critique? Well, some of it is. I mean, we didn't get everything right. I will say that, uh, you know, we were first in the nation in student achievement, in healthcare coverage. 99% of our residents have, uh, have healthcare, um, the precursor to the ACA. As you Governor know. Romney deserves some credit for that. He too. signed the bill. It went into effect the day that I took. He signed the bill right there. Right. Um, it went into With effect. With Ted Kennedy uh, over his shoulder. That's right. Uh, it went into effect the day I took office, so uh, uh, I feel we have our, uh, our fair share of credit to take uh, as well. Uh, first in the nation, veteran services, in, uh, in entrepreneurial activity, in, uh, I mean, it was so many firsts. We had the highest bond rating in the history of the, uh, of the Commonwealth, consistently responsible uh, 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 budgets. Um, for all of the back and forth with the legislature, you know, they gave me 95% of what I asked for. What did you um, learn from that experience? If you, if, and, and let's not go through the whole, I'm focused on the November thing, but if you were ever to, to be president of the United States, mm. um, what, what did you learn from that experience that would inform you? Well, I will say that the legislative process is slower than, um, this impatient governor appreciated. And, um, you know, I'm not sure I ever got used to that. Uh, but... Um, but you would have to. Well, you know, do you have to? Um, we were in um, a, uh, an economic emergency. And so the... Um, I mean, looking back, it's hard to complain mm -hmm. because, as I say... Yeah, you did... They gave us, mm -hmm. they gave us 95% of what I asked for, not when I asked for it or always in the form I asked for it, but they gave it to us. So it's hard to, it's hard to complain, but you want it faster. And, uh, and I think the people want it faster. Um, but, uh, you know, I think about, the, about sentencing reform, for example. Folks have been waiting for that for a decade before we asked for it. Mm -hmm. and, then, um, and then they had to wait even longer. I think the other thing you, I learned... Sorry. Uh, go ahead. No, I, you, you also learned how to uh, deal with uh, uh, catastrophes such as the Boston Marathon. Sure, sure. There were, uh, you know, emergencies, um, you, you, difficulties you, you kind of expect, but... but uh, how was that experience? But catastrophes are different. Um, they are... I think everybody stepped up. You know, we had... Um, Everybody, and not just the officials. Um, the first responders were extraordinary. They brought their very best, but private citizens brought their very best too. And I will say, it's one of, one of I think, our proudest moments that we took um, a, a moment that could have turned into a classic appeal to fear and division, and instead brought kindness forward and celebrated that. and and unity, and in a hundred some odd hours found two needles in a haystack and let um, our judicial system and law enforcement system perform. And they were tried in our courts and sentenced and uh, in, in 
uh, in proceedings that will be affirmed in our system. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. We didn't have to have uh, extraordinary and special um, behaviors. It, it worked the way it was designed to work, and we were stronger coming out of it because we saw that our institutions functioned and we were, we were at our very best. All of us were at our very best. You know, um, politics is a brutal business. Yeah. And it's more brutal perhaps than ever today. Um, well, if we had any rules, they've been cast aside, haven't they? You, you went through a tough campaign in 2006. It was hard on your family. Your wife very publicly acknowledged that she dealt with depression after it. You had family members who were uh, attacked. How much does that factor into your thinking uh, about doing something in the future? Well, it factored a lot into, uh, into my thinking about whether to run for re-election when I ran for a second term. And it factored a lot into my thinking about whether to step away after, uh, uh, after a, second, uh, a second term. So it's on my mind. I love my wife. We've been married 35 years this coming May, and, uh, and I love my family. And, you know, they make a fair claim on me. Um, that's, that's what it's about. That's what family's about. And um, so, yeah, that's on, that's on my mind. And as I said, you know, I interrupted you. Um, I'm sorry, but uh, what rules there were seem to have been cast aside. I don't understand what the... I don't understand why. I mean, maybe politics always was a kind of a... Um, a, a blood sport and, uh, and, uh, uh, and the lack of decorum was always about, maybe it was always entertaining in that way, but it, it's, I'm not sure what we gain from it. You know, what, I'm not sure that we learn much about um, candidates by, uh, by bullying each other. Um, we have so turned off the electorate from a vital part of the, you know, the oxygen of democracy by um, making the process of democracy so distasteful for them. Um, and I, I worry about that. I remember you may, in the summer before the primary election, in uh, my first primary election, and we were, folks were just beginning to take us seriously. Um, and the negative ads were just coming strong. And um, we were getting advice. It was time for us. We just raised some money, and it was time for us to hit back. And uh, we were getting a whole lot of pressure to um, go negative in, in response. And I, I remember saying, you know, we can't do that because we had invited all these folks into the campaign on the promise it was going to be a positive campaign and that we couldn't break faith with them by going negative. And so we explained to them that um, we weren't going to do what conventional can campaigns did be for this reason. We weren't going to break faith. Um, and they just had to hang in um, and deal with all this alongside of us um, because we had made a promise yeah. that this was going to be a campaign that they and their kids could be proud of. And so what gives you hope now, given the great acrimony that, of our politics, I mean, this grinding, nasty... Uh, period in which we live, what gives you hope about the future? Well, I'm, I, I'm, I, am, I am generally hopeful about the future, but I think that the electorate's going to tell us. I mean, you know, I look at, I look at the, I look at the, uh, at the activism, uh, back to 
conversation we were having earlier, I look at the activism that has been spawned by regular people, not, you know, not professional activists, not, I mean, the, 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 the Women's March was organized by folks sending messages around to each other saying, we got to get together and, yeah. and make a statement. Parkland kids. Right. The Parkland kids, Black Lives Matter, you know, Time's Up, um, uh, Black Girl Magic. I mean, all these incredible grassroots, spontaneous, and there are many others, where uh, movements where folks have said, you know what, we have got to show that we are better than this moment, that we are bigger than this moment, that there is decency and kindness in us that expresses what is fundamental about Americans, um, and that that is indeed uh, more expressive and more indicative about what it means to be American than what we get today in the president's tweets. Seems like a, a worthy place in this chamber to thank you thank for your you. time, Governor. Glad you had Great to, to be, with, to be you with you Thank you. Your first campaign, which would happen to be for governor, mm -hmm. uh, and it was at a tense moment in the campaign where you were under attack because in politics when you're doing well, that's what happens. Yeah. And you came out here and you looked out at this vast expanse of field in the mm -hmm. Boston Common from this band shell, mm -hmm. and, uh, which was filled with people. Mm -hmm. And you made uh, this comment uh, as part of your speech, I will not engage in the politics of fear because fear is poisonous. All through history has been used to hold back progress and limit fairness. Only hope defeats fear, uh, it always has. You know, there's this theory now that in order to uh, defeat the president that one has to be as, as uh, angry and as pugilistic hmm. uh, as he is. And there's a competing theory which is that uh, you have to offer a different path. Yeah. And I suspect that's the one that you, uh, that you embrace. The different path. Well, I, I, you know, I do worry that uh, the Democrats will stop at just, you know, perfecting our critique of the current administration. I think we have to offer a positive alternative. And, uh, and I am hoping that in 2018 and beyond that our positive alternative will be, uh, you know, an opportunity agenda, which is about um, our vision for how we grow the economy out to everybody and not just up to the well-connected, um, that it will be an, a reform agenda to fix the systems that are broken from, you know, the healthcare system to the immigration system to the tax system and beyond, that there will be a foreign policy agenda that is about a constructive and responsible engagement around our values. Um, uh, around the world and the democracy agenda that I talked about, how we fix democracy itself. But you know that, um, that if the president is on the ballot, uh, that there will be a constant barrage of attacks. Um, that is his style of politics. And uh, the fear is that Democrats will not respond in kind, or at least the fear expressed by the exponents of that first point of view. Yeah. Uh, that one needs to be as pugilistic as him. Is there a danger in that, that he 
through uh, sheer vitriol <laughs> kind of carries the I day? I don't know, Dave. You're the expert. <laughs> I've only run for one thing two times. You know, I think my perspective is probably more developed as a citizen than as a, as a politician. And I think that as a citizen, we are hungry for something other than just a show, uh, especially a reality TV show. And, you know, there's but so much um, of the of the uh, of the of the show, I think, uh, particularly the show we get right now, that um, I think citizens have an appetite for. All right, so you win the shouting match, then what? What happens then? Um, what are you coming to vote for? You know, we spent a lot of time in the 2016 uh, campaign, um, especially in the last several weeks when we were trying to close the deal, um, talking about what was wrong with Trump. Um, and excuse me, with President Trump, then candidate Trump. And uh, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. He sucked up all the air and all the oxygen because it was a novelty. It was a, it was a carnival. And it'll be a novelty and a carnival the next time. He has shown he can perfect that. But there is the people's business to be done. And we need to be talking about the people's um, business and how we can turn to rather than on each other. And I think Democrats have to talk about a plan for that uh, and not just a response to him. Is there a danger that people like you, for example, will look at what you call the show, the spectacle, uh, and, uh, and the, the, the sort of acid nature of the process and say, that's not for me? that good people will turn and walk away from the fight because uh, it's just too nasty and mm -hmm. too mean, mm -hmm. too difficult. Mm -hmm. I think there is a, you, you, you're talking about candidates or, candidates, uh, or voters? Yeah. Well, I think both, yeah. actually. I'm worried more about the voters uh, than I am uh, candidates. As I said earlier, uh, you know, we were back over at Fanwell Hall that um, uh, I think we're gonna have a big, broad and talented field. Uh, so I don't think we're going to lack for uh, uh, for uh, for candidates, and and I am hoping that um, uh, that candidates that big broad field will will include candidates who understand that voters are hungry for more than just a perfected critique of uh, of the Trump administration. You filled this field, and you filled it again back in 2008 when Barack Obama was running for yeah, president, and you. Uh, endorsed him, uh, and uh, it, it's, it spoke to the nature of grassroots politics and the power of grassroots politics. But there's another power, uh, there are other power sources, the power of media, which Donald Trump uh, uh, proved in his campaign, mm -hmm. the use of, uh, of, of the so-called earned media, of, of television and the other, and Twitter. Uh, there's also money. Mm -hmm which seems more uh, uh, coming in more volume today than uh, ever before. And people with money have more of it now. Yeah. Um, what is the future for grassroots politics? And can grassroots politics overcome? It's got to. It's got to. And it's got to. And then, you know, when we do have power, we have to change the system. You know, we can't keep pushing that issue down the road uh, as well, right? We have, uh, you know, Democrats have been complicit in this problem too. Right? 
we, we keep talking about how we can't unilaterally disarm. You hear more and more candidates saying they're not taking PAC money in this cycle. Uh, and doing perfectly well without it, and I think that's really encouraging, but I think we have to change the system so that PAC money um, becomes a, a disqualifier. It's just not allowed. I mean, this notion that a so-called conservative Supreme Court deems a corporation a person <laughs> so that, uh, you Citizens know, you get, United. Uh, it's just ridiculous. There's it's nothing, opened the door to a, a floodgate. Of course it has, and we were, we, and that door was, was, uh, was, uh, was uh, open a crack already, um, it's just uh, it's just justified on constitutional grounds uh, the the excesses that uh, that the other side has won. On that point, we're about to have a vote on another appointee to the Supreme Court, the yeah. second Trump appointee. What is your level of concern about this appointment? Mm -hmm. If you were there, you must have followed these hearings. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, what did you think of the performance of Democrats on that mm -hmm. committee? And secondly, uh, if you were there, would you vote for? Uh, Judge Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court. Well, you be, practiced before, so I. We be hard for me to uh, to vote for uh, this nominee, um, having brought having been brought forward through this process, because the you know the process has been rushed, uh, documents have been withheld, um, and 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 leave aside all of the object objections, and it's hard to to the way uh, President Obama's last appointee was treated, which was... Merrick Garland. Yes, and that was a, that was... A friend of yours, someone indeed. you know. Um, uh, and that was totally uncalled for. Um, but, um, you know, the, the way this process has been had, handled, the lack of transparency, the haste, um, leaves uh, one, I think, quite reasonably to wonder what it is, what is it they, they're hiding? And, uh, um, and to the extent we have had a glimpse of some of the so-called committee confidential uh, documents, it makes you, it makes you, gives you the sense that what they're hiding uh, are views that are outside the legal mainstream. And if they are views that are outside the legal mainstream, this is a nominee who should not be on the court. Um, so, you know, why, what is this about? What really is this about? Is this about a highly qualified nominee, or is this about engineering another result? In the same way I talked about in the democracy agenda, trying to engineer electoral results, is this about uh, the hard right, the radical right uh, that has captured the Republican Party, trying to now engineer legal uh, results, engineer interpretations of the, uh, of the Constitution? If the merits of their arguments are so good, put them to the test, the test of public opinion, the test of rigorous mainstream legal analysis. Um, that's the way the system ought to, ought to work. How worried are you about the transformation of the court and, and the, what it will mean for the things that you've been active in over the years, uh, voting rights, uh, uh, the rights of uh, gay Americans, uh, uh, the whole array of issues that have consumed you for you know, it's, it's interesting. I, 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 um, I think that some of my views on some of those issues I arrive at through um, what I used to describe as somewhat conservative um, uh, channels, which is to say, you know, I think there's some things government does do well and some it doesn't. Uh, and I think government is not that good at very personal decisions in our lives, you know, like deciding whether um, 
a woman and her family should or should not keep an unwanted pregnancy, whether um, um, to put a person to death, um, whether um, you know you or I um, get to you know choose whom we marry. The very intimate decisions in people's lives should be left to the intimacy of that person. Um, and not up to government. And, you know, that is sometimes, it used to be thought of as a conservative point of view. But those, um, that's, a, that's my basis for thinking government should stay out of, out of that. And that's why a woman should have her right to choose, uh, why, um, why there should be marriage equality. And, um, and based all on what of that- based on, Excuse me for interrupting. Based on what you heard in those hearings, do you have concerns that some of these rights will be Curtail? Yes. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.